All right, good morning. Uh, Go ahead, take out your Bibles. I can't emphasize enough uh, that your Bibles will be important during this series, okay? We're starting a new series today, going through the life of David. Typically here, what we do uh, is we take a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We want to hear, study, wrestle with everything that God has to say to us. And the best way to do that, we believe, is just to walk right through the story that he has given us. Uh, And we're still going to, as we look at David's life in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, so go ahead and turn your Bible to 1 Samuel. I'll give you a few minutes to find that. Um, It's probably not the the most typical book that you turn to, but it is towards the beginning of your Bible. Um, Don't be ashamed to look at the table of contents. But... Um, we will still walk through expositionally, just, just meaning that we walk through the text, uh, but we are going to take a little bit of a different approach. We, we try to just kind of speak and teach in a way that the Bible kind of presents itself, and this is very much a story form. Uh, so this morning, we're going to have a little bit of an intro into David's life and the text that we have, and then we're going to look at chapter 16 of the book of 1 Samuel, kind of David's introduction in scripture and in history. Uh, and so we'll, we'll look at that in a story form, and then we'll just kind of take some of the theological implications, some of the life implications out of that this morning as we really are setting up the next 11 weeks to walk through the life of David. So we'll be in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and also a little bit in Psalms. And so the importance for you to have your Bible, as it always is, uh, is that some of these weeks, and this week we'll look at all of chapter 16, we'll we'll study the first 13 verses, but we'll read the whole thing. Uh, But some weeks we might go through three, four chapters even. And so we're not going to read the whole thing, but we will be kind of telling the story. And so I want you to have your Bible uh, so that you can follow along, and electronic Bibles are totally fine too. But I like hard copy. So if you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. Uh, There are some Bibles in the lobby. You can take one of those. That's our free gift to you. Uh, David is a great historical figure. I don't know if you have ever studied the life of David before. Uh, Maybe you've read some historical books about him, or you've actually studied the Bible in 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, But he's a great figure in God's story. And I want to say it to us in that way, because I think a lot of times when we start looking at the life of David as Christians, maybe we've read Christian books, uh, where David's life really becomes uh, uh, something that we desire to implement. If David can do it, we can do it. And if he's got a giant and we have giants and he overcame his giant, then we can overcome our giant. And those are implications of who we are in God, certainly. And we'll talk about those things as we walk through the story of David, but ultimately this story is about God. The story is about us seeing his faithfulness, his grace, his love, his goodness, his his steady plan and his sovereignty and providentially working through every single thing that happens and takes place in our lives. And so ultimately, everything that we are going to do, everything David does, it's all pointing towards God. It's, it's his story, but it's a greater story that is God's story. And we are a part of God's story as well. So we're going to look at it in that way. But there's multiple reasons uh, beyond that that I think that David's life is something really good for us to study. One is that we know more about David than any other character in Scripture outside of Jesus. So there is a lot for us to study about his life, and if God gave this much of his story to this King David, then there are probably some things that we need to learn there. 
of course, also everything that I just said. God's promise is coming through the Israelite people as we'll dig into deeper throughout this series. And so David's life is really pointing towards the Messiah who would come that we just studied the life of through the Gospel of Mark for almost a year, walking through Mark's Gospel verse by verse. And then finally, I believe that it's a great study for us to look at, a great life for us to see, because David is so relatable. Now, some of us, if you've looked at David's life before, if you've read some of his story, you might ask the question, how in the world is David relatable to us? He was a great king. None of us are great kings, right? He killed a giant. I don't think any of us have done that. He saved an entire nation. We probably don't relate to him in that. He wrote more songs that have been sung than anybody else who has ever lived. We read the the book of Psalms in scripture, and he was a singer, and he played the harp and instruments. He, He was rich. Everybody wanted to be like him, and everybody wanted to be with him, right? He was one of those type of people, and so it seems like if we're just looking at his life, how do we actually relate to him? But there are also some different things we see in David's life. Those are the highlights. Those are some of the things that we typically highlight in our lives. But there's some other highlights that we need to see, that we learn a lot about David, our own hearts, and God's heart for his people. There are stories, there's a story within the story here of the the culture of the Israelite people, and I believe it relates very well to our cultural dream, the American dream today, the things that we pursue for life and salvation and, and flourishing in the way that we desire. The Israelites were very similar, and David is also a man who gives us some answers to the complexity of our lives. His life was so up and down. There were trials and there were triumphs and there was brokenness and there was healing. Listen to one of my favorite books about his life. It's called Leap Over the Wall by Eugene Peterson. And in his book, he says this about David. The David story is a plunge into the earthiness of humanity. He's so emphatically human. We see David fighting, praying, loving, sinning. David conditioned by the modern morals and assumptions of a brutal uh, Iron Age culture. David's unfaithfulness. We see David's anger, David's deviousness, a murder, David's generosity, David's worshiping, David's dancing. David is a man after God's own heart. No other biblical story has this type of human range. And it seems every event in David's life is a confrontation with himself, with others, and with God. How many of us might feel that way? Just everything about life is this inner battle and and this this awkward kind of just battle maybe with others in different ways. And, And maybe we struggle in our relationship and connectivity and community with God. But here's what Peterson says. This is where the beauty of the story lies. This is where we see God move in this tension. We've talked often here about how discipleship happens in tension, how becoming and living the life that we were created for and designed for and and that we ultimately desire and long for happens in tension, not just seeking comfort, not just going after and chasing our every desire for the most comfortable moment by moment and circumstance in our lives, but through tension and stretching, that's where we actually begin to grow. And what we find is that there's nothing that God can't and doesn't use in our lives to work towards our salvation 
and uh, revealing his holiness so that our hearts can be transformed and live the life that we were created to live. David's life truly shows God's great grace and love and faithfulness in a way that we don't find anywhere else in all of scripture, that God is good in all things, and that in him we can begin to identify who we really are and where we really belong and what we're really created to do. We can have a greater perspective on life. This is what David's life and the complexity of it begins to show to us. And this is really one of the great problems that we have today, is it not? It's, it's very difficult to understand who we actually are, what identity we should actually live in. And, and, and naturally, it changes over time with the culture and with our circumstances and the situations that we're in. We're constantly seeking to add to our identity or take from our identity, trying to find what works. We have a hard time with community and joy is so elusive and and we end up being confused. All of our culture is very confused, is it not? Like we we push the individuality of each individual person, follow your heart, do what it it seems right to you, and then reveal that to the culture that we belong to. And that's how we're all individuals and we create a loving culture. But then the complete opposite happens when we go from just thinking about the individual to thinking about the actual society. Because when we think about actual society, though we want to push individuality, we try to put people in boxes. We try to put them in groups and beliefs and subcategories so that we can kind of understand and flatten everybody's personal identities so that we can wrap our minds around how we all fit together. So there's just mass confusion about identity and about who we are and what we're created to be and what we're created to be a part of. And what we find in David's life, as I'm about to dig in and we're about to read the scripture, is that there are really two ways to approach life. There's a natural way that we approach life, and then there is a supernatural way in which we can approach life and meaning. The natural, we'll call the, the outside approach. It's, it's focusing on the outer person or the outer man or the outer woman. This is found outside of God, but it's the natural way that we find ourselves in the world that we live in. I find life in what I can see and what I can touch and what I can feel. But this leads us to three different obsessions. When we're finding life in what we see, can touch, and feel, then we will begin to have a, an obsession with appearance. Everything will be about what do I look like and and how are other people perceiving me, not just what I wear, but like what do people think about me? What are people perceiving of me? What am I putting forward for others and what are they thinking about me? We will be absolutely obsessed with this and finding our identity. The second is our possessions. We'll want everything that we possibly can have to get rid of everything that we feel like is hurting us in life, and we will pursue with all of life the longing that we have to have fulfillment and satisfaction in the things that we can accomplish, the things we can achieve, the things and the materials that we can possess. And the third one is pleasure. We will seek joy in just following our own hearts and whatever feels good in the moment. We will want to be most comfortable in every single passing moment of our lives. But none of this actually leads to meaning. It actually leads to the confusion I just talked about and and uncertainty and anxiety and depression because we never have enough and we're always afraid of losing what we have. And we will also begin to misinterpret every situation that we are in because we're seeing it through the wrong lens. 
the trials, the heartaches, the ups, the downs, all the things that David is going to go through, we will identify those and oftentimes misidentify those and miss the thing that we can learn in them in the pursuit of what we were actually created to be. And this is what we see in the life of David. Because the second is the supernatural approach, and that's the inside approach, the inner person, or the inner man, or the inner woman. This is the way that we were created and designed to, to know who we are and, to, and the lens in which we're created to see life. In God, we can begin to see that the significant things of life that make us who we are are not just the things we see, touch, and feel, but the things that are unseen. It's our heart. It's our mind. It's our soul. And this completely transforms and flips upside down our perspective on life. One has the thought, what I do makes me who I am. This is the outer person. This is the outer man. What I do makes me who I am. What I have makes me who I am. What I feel makes me who I am. While the other is resting satisfied in the life that you have been given and revealing what you have in everything that you do. Who you are determines what you do. One is freeing. One says, I I know who I am. I have life. I, I have what I'm longing for. And yes, I go through all the same circumstances and things in my life that I have to struggle with. And 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 but I have a lens in which to see them through that allows me to reveal true joy and peace and rest in any circumstance that I am in, rather than having to identify those circumstances as taking life away from me or giving life to me. This is what we see in the life of David, and we're going to begin to see this story this morning, and all of this will come together more and more each week as we look at his life, but look in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse and the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for you myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to make sacrifices to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for him uh, whom I declared you to. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? It wasn't necessarily a great thing, and we'll see this in just a moment, for a prophet or a judge to visit you when he doesn't normally visit you. He's normally saying something wrong is happening here. God is coming. He is going to judge you. You need to repent or this is going to happen. So it wasn't necessarily something that you wanted to experience. So they're a little bit fearful. They say, do you come peaceably? said, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Go clean up and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointing is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, listen to this, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward person, the appearance, but the Lord looks at the inner person, the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by him and said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. 
Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all, all, all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Notice David's position. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he says, hurry up. And he sent and brought him in. Now he, has, uh, he was ruddy. We'll see what that means in just a moment. And have beautiful eyes. So he does have something going for him. He's a little bit handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, those are the verses we're going to look at together this morning. But I want us to read the rest of the chapter. So look at verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's important. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servant whom you, before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So how many of you feel like music is pretty therapeutic? That's not anything new. And they're like, hey, you're in a bad place. Let's get some really good music. Maybe this will put you in a good mood. We'll get something stuck in your head. So verse 17, so Saul said to his servant, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite. Now, none of this makes sense given that we just saw David has been anointed to be king. But something happens here where he's not immediately king. And now he's going to be called to be a servant to Saul, who he just took the place of. So something is taking place here. I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So clearly he's not ruddy anymore. There's some years that have gone by, and he has grown up. Therefore Saul, verse 19, sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden in with bread and skin for wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his arm bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. And this of course sets up one of the most famous scriptures in all of the Bible, which we will see next week where David became the arm bearer and then faces Goliath. But there's a lot taking place here in this text, and there's some things I want us to see. So we're going to tell kind of the, the, the backstory, and then we're just going to look at this story and some implications and application to our life. So very simple storytelling this morning, but this is taking place about a thousand years before Jesus came. So we were in Mark last week. Now we have gone back in time a thousand years before Jesus. This is in the time that was called the time of the judges. And judges were given to the Israelite people because they were really under a theocracy. They were supposed to be the people of God. God had called them unto himself so that they would reveal in community together what we were actually created to find community around, who we actually are, but then also the purpose, the mission that we are created in on earth for. They were to reveal to all the nations around them what it looked like to be a kingdom under God. 
for the kingdom of God to be revealed on earth. And of course, they struggle mightily with that, as every single one of us does. None of us are able to live up to the standard that God gives us, but they were to look to God. God was to be their king. They were under a, theoc- a theocratic government, and, but they had judges that were put in place to help the people, to, to kind of go around and, and prophesy and tell God's word, but also to call people back to God whenever they were walking away from him. And so this is the time of the judges. They were there to guide the people. And things are going really bad during this time. The people are not worshiping God. They're worshiping other gods. They have enemies that are all around them. And so the the culture, the society of the Israelite people in Jerusalem, it is complete chaos at this point. We might look at our culture today and think, man, has it ever been this bad? Everything is going wrong. And the answer to that is yes. Just read your Bible. Read history. Things have never gone well when a bunch of people get together because we're all broken. We're all in searching. We're all prideful. We're all defining ourselves by what we look like and what we do and what we can possess and, and because we look at the outer man. And this is how we judge life and kingdom and salvation and how much can we get. And whenever that is the way we define ourselves, there will always be division. There will never be unity. And this is what we still do in our culture today. So Israel had this prophet named Samuel, and he was calling the people back to God to to focus on the inner man, to see yourself as God has created you, to define yourself by the heart that God gives you, and, and to live in the freedom of how he has created us and designed us to live. This is what the law is supposed to do for those who follow Christ. And so this is really a summary, really quickly, of chapters 1 through 15. Samuel is in place as a judge. During this time of disaster, and just like in all of human history, the the people of Israel had enemies. Among them, which we will see a lot about, are the Amalekites and the Philistines, right? And if you know one Bible story, you probably know the Bible story of David and Goliath, the big giant Philistine, and the battle that the Israelites and the Philistines went through. And we'll see all of that in the coming weeks. But here's where God's people were in the time of Samuel. They're going, hey, everything is chaos, and this God isn't, isn't supplying what we need, and it, it feels like the God of, of the Bible is, is kind of in the dark. We're not sure what's going on there, and we have all of these enemies pressing up against us. We're constantly at war, and, and everything around us is crumbling, and so what we need is a king. We need a king like every other nation. We need a king like every other kingdom, and, and we're under this theocracy, and God is up there somewhere, and and we're not really sure what he's up to, And, and, and even though God had promised them that he would provide for them if they seek him, and if they are a people after his own heart, that he would protect them, he had brought them out of Egypt, he had protect them from so many enemies before they continue to turn from him. They continue to look at the world and and how the culture around them is operating and how the people around them perceive salvation and lasting life and flourishing, and they go, we need that. We don't need what God has told us. We need a king. And so they go to Samuel, and they ask Samuel to anoint a king. We want a king like every other people has a king. And, and Samuel knows that this is wrong. He, he, he advises them that they shouldn't do this. But ultimately, Samuel takes the request to God. 
And God grants them this request. And and I want to say this really quickly because I think a lot of times we go to God and we have these requests and we just believe that if God answers whatever it is that we have requested of him, then it must have been his will. It must have been good. It must have been what was right. And, And see, I told you so. I asked God for it. You advised me not to. You said you loved me and you loved God and you were looking out for me. But God gave me what I asked for. And we tend to always think that's good. But here we see something different happening, that there are times that God will answer your prayer in order to show that you aren't seeking the right things. In order to reveal us, see, he's all about the heart, he's all about the the inner man and, and us being who we were created to be so that we can begin to live out of that identity, not for an identity that has to be achieved, but an identity that is received in him. And sometimes when his people are walking away and they believe that they need a possession or an identity of appearance or something that they feel that doesn't give glory and honor to him, and they're asking and they're asking and they're asking and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, then God might just give it to you to show you it won't satisfy. It's not what you were created for. And when God does this, it allows us to have what we think we need immediately so that we can best understand what we ultimately long for. Listen, joy in life, flourishing in life, everything that we desire in life is not about immediate pleasure but ultimate fulfillment. We were created for so much more than just what does this situation in this moment mean to me in my finite mind and how does it make me feel and what possession does it give me and all of the different ways we look at things from the outer point of view. We said life doesn't come in comfort, it comes in stretching. It comes in growing, it comes in realizing and surrendering to God everything that we are so that we can have the relationship and community with him that we were created to have. So sometimes God will give us what we ask to bring us to him. Other times he'll say no, right? And he'll just say, this is not what you need and I'm gonna direct you in a different way. And other times he says, yes, this is what is best for you in the moment and you're asking for the right thing that gives me glory and moves you towards me. But listen to me, everything that God does and allows has a redemptive purpose. It's pointing towards him. It's drawing us into him and he cares much more about the heart than your moment today. He cares about how you're moving towards him, how we're breaking away from the lies that we believe. And listen to me, anytime you discover truth in your life, it will kill things in you that you believe that were a lie. It will begin to transform you. It will change the way you perceive things, the way you understand things. Anytime real truth comes into your life, it begins to strip away the lies you believed, and that hurts. Begins to strip away the things you, per- you perceive that you needed, that you don't need. It begins to strip away the relationships that you thought that were making your life great and joyful and happy that, that weren't actually doing that in your life. The truth will begin to alleviate all of the lies in your life. And that sounds like this beautiful, glorious thing, but it also is a, a matter of surrender. It's a matter of, of pain at times, of waiting at times. But this is how God will work. But he's going to be faithful through everything that happens. And this is what we see in this text, that God is faithful. That's one of the main themes in the story of David's life. 
And the answer to whatever we are going through is to seek the heart of God, not his hand. And I love how we see this. God is always going to answer us in the way that we need. He will always provide for us what we need to provide, have provided for us. But he's always going to do so in a direction that allows us to, to know that he is ultimately what we need. Not his hand, not his things, not his creation. It's not about the outer man. We will never enjoy the things that we receive in all of his creation unless we understand how we are supposed to perceive them. Not for life, but to reveal life. So God begins to show this, and God gives king, a king to the Israelite people, a king named Saul. And it's important that Saul is here, and we understand that, that he's the king that we would pick. Like, if you were going to say, hey, we need a ruler, we need a king, like, we need somebody who's going to lead our people into the, the promised land, so to speak, overcome our enemies, be somebody that the world looks up to, be somebody that the world around us fears, and that we love, like, Saul is your person. When we seek salvation in the outer man, we look for these types of identities, and not that these things are wrong or bad, but these are the things that define everything for us rather than some of the things that we should be seeing along with these things. But he was taller than everybody else. He was more handsome than anybody else, right? And, and we see in this text the words handsome and pretty, and I think those are words we probably should be bring back. Into our, into our language, right? Our language is going completely chaotic in our culture today. Um, but handsome is not a word I typically use, but probably a word that's better than like hot, right? Or something of that nature. And um, totally off topic, but I saw a meme this week um, where it was talking about worship songs in 2040. I don't know if you guys have seen any of this stuff. It's hilarious and it makes me want Jesus to return today, right? <laughs> Um, but I saw this one where this guy was worshiping in 2040, and the worship leaders just go, goes like, Lord, you are bussin', bussin'. <laughs> the only thing I trust in. And then the worship leader's like, come on, guys, sing it. No cap, no cap, right? Um, and if you don't know what those things mean, I don't either, okay? Uh, no cap means no lie, bussin', something, I don't know, right? I have no idea. Lord, return, please. Uh, but the word handsome just sounds so good compared to modern language. But anyway, I digress. He was stronger than everybody else. He was more powerful than everybody else. He was intelligent. He had the resume that everybody would believe you need to be king. This is what defined him. And this is why he was chosen. So they elect Saul to be king, and God at first, God blesses him. God puts his hand upon it. He cares for his people. He desires to be faithful to his people, and he always is. And it says, the text says that the Spirit of God came upon Saul. Now, a, a clear thing that we need to understand is that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would descend upon people for a time or for a moment, but would not remain in them. It's after Christ and his death and his resurrection. When Jesus comes and lives for us, as we have discussed, and died on the cross to pay the penalty of our rebellion and sin and rose to defeat sin and death so that we might place our faith in him and by his grace be saved, 
We saw that the veil of the temple was torn so that we, when we place our faith in Christ and his work for us, we become all that we were created to be, not by our work and our possessions and our appearance, but by God's and what he has done for us. And so we have community with him. And when we place our faith in him, the spirit lives and dwells in us. But in the Old Testament, the spirit would come on a person for a time or in a moment. And the spirit of God descends on Paul so that he might lead the people well. And for a time, he does. He's defeating enemies, and and he's doing things that that you would think a God-honoring man does. And that's very important. I need us to separate maybe Saul from every other king that we thought of, or we would think about and filter him through, because Saul's not like, in God's eyes, any other king. Remember, the Israelite people are supposed to be under a theocracy. They weren't supposed to have an earthly king. They were supposed to look directly to God, and these judges were there to guide them. But now that they have demanded a king and God has granted it, then this king has an extra responsibility on him if the Israelite people are going to be the people that God has called them to be. He has to look like or act like and point people to God. There's a huge responsibility there, and obviously none of us can do that. So God is with him and he's doing great at first, but then Saul makes some really ungodly decisions. And the reason that's so important is because of what the Israelite people are supposed to be doing. He makes sacrifices he shouldn't have made. He battles against the Amalekites and the Amalekites were were people who were oppressive and, and they were putting people into slavery and killing and slaughtering communities and Agag was the, the king of the Amalekites. And so God, for justice purposes, and we see later on for his people's purposes, to continue his people, tells Saul that he needs to go and completely wipe out, annihilate the Amalekite people, but he actually allows King Agag to live. Now, Samuel's going to take care of that. You can read verses, chapters 1 through 15 to see how he does that. It's pretty cool. Samuel is a, a beast of a priest, all right? Like, he is not like any other priest that you, or pastor that you have ever met or seen. Um, but but he, God tells Saul to do these things, and he doesn't do them. He becomes very proud. He also becomes very paranoid. This is why we see Saul act the way he acts in our story that we just read. These are deadly combos for kings and people to to reveal the gospel of Christ. And because of this, the faithfulness of God to bring about the Messiah, and because God was going to bring about the Messiah to protect the Israelite people, God removes his hand from Saul. God tells Samuel that Saul is no longer going to be the king, that he has removed his blessing from him and he is going to bless another. He'll bring about another king that would, that would be a man who seeks after his own heart, even through all the trials and all the ups and downs and all the, the sinfulness we will see in his life. He continues to turn back to God and this is what the people need to see and this is the line that the Messiah will come from. But Samuel, we see, is extremely grieved by that. God, we've set a king in front of the people and the king isn't able to do what you alone can do. And and he's grieved for his people. He's grieved for Saul. He's sorrowful for what has taken place and that his people are not turning back to God. And this is where we pick Samuel up. He's grieving this loss. He's grieving the loss for his people. And then God comes to him. Look what God says. In essence, God really just says, why are you grieving? You have a purpose. You have a calling. 
Don't live in, in a false identity. He tells Samuel that how long are you going to grieve? Now, I want us to understand this moment, and I don't want to just kind of overlook grief, because I know grief is a powerful, powerful thing. And it is something that we do face, and we should go through, and we should handle properly. And sometimes that takes different amounts of times, and different meetings with different people, and prayer, and and we need to work through and wrestle through our grief. So notice that God does not say, while Samuel is grieving, he does not come and tell him that grieving isn't important. What he says is, why have you grieved for so long? See, what God calls Samuel out of is not his grief for grief's sake or the the sorrow that he feels because of what he's going through, but hey, are you going to allow this grief to define your life? Are you going to get up and live about your purpose? Are you going to use this grief as fuel? Or are you going to allow this grief to define who you are and keep you from living the life that you were created to live? And so I want us to notice that God does not rebuke the grief. He rebukes the length of the grief. How long will you grieve? And this is God's gentle reminder to him and maybe to some of us today that I have a plan for you. There's a mission that you are to fulfill in life and and grief absolutely will come. Many of us maybe today, like Samuel, are grieving. We're sorrowful. Maybe for our children Maybe for the loss of a loved one, maybe for something we've done in the past, maybe for a dream that we have that we feel has been shattered, a plan that we were living out, but we feel like it is hopeless, a friendship that has been broken, a sickness that we've been diagnosed with. Samuel felt that. And God certainly understands our grief. He felt grief in his life. We see that in the life of Jesus. And grief has a process, but ultimately, listen to me, grief cannot define you. Your sorrow cannot define you. It can cause us to quit or it can be a fuel for his mission when we work through it properly. And God is saying, as long as you are here on this earth, there is a purpose that is greater than living and being defined by your sorrow. There's a purpose that only you can be fulfilled by going through it and by overcoming it and looking to God. So we must realize there's a fine line. Listen, there's a fine line between grieving as a part of life and allowing our lives to be defined by our grief. And this is what God is doing. Samuel, get up. There's greater purpose. Grieve. Work through it. I understand. I grieve with you. But there is a time to grieve. And there's a time to move forward. Work through it, but there is something in Jesus that is deeper. It's a deeper hope than our suffering. There's a greater life than our fear. There's a greater gift than anything that we could lose or gain. So grieve rightly. Seek the help that you need this morning if you are in grief and sorrow that is just completely overwhelming. But know that God is calling us to something greater. Use it as fuel in your life. Use it as a testimony to his goodness for others. This is what we see here. And so Samuel goes through this progression. He's like, okay, God, I I get what you're saying. He doesn't argue with God about that, but he argues with God about what he calls him to do. He goes, I'm scared. Like, I I can't go to Jesse and anoint another king because if Saul finds out his paranoia and his fear and his pride and, and his being ruled by people around him that he desires and pretends to rule, like, he will kill me. 
But God tells them to go to Bethlehem, which should ring all sorts of, of bells in us about Jesus and the story that is to come and the connection of David and the Messiah to come. But he tells them to go to Bethlehem and to find Jesse, who's the grandson of Ruth, uh, if you're familiar with scripture and the stories of the Old Testament. And among his sons, he will anoint a king. But Samuel's terrified of that because he's afraid that Saul will kill him. And here's where we need to be reminded that everything that God calls us to do, and if we're walking for his glory and for his honor, we're pursuing him in everything, then he will provide everything that we need to fulfill what he has called us into. He is faithful and he is good and he will always provide. He tells Saul, you got to make the walk. You got to go. You got to take the right things and all the equipment and and you've got to set up the sacrifice and you've got to have the the sons walk before you, but I will provide safety for you. I will provide the king. I will give the anointing. God will always provide what he has called us to. So with Saul, as Samuel, we don't have to be in despair. We don't have to fear. We don't have to feel overwhelmed. We don't have to panic. And when we do, listen to me, and I know all of us do, but here's what panic reveals when we're walking in the glory of God. It simply reveals that we are hoping in the wrong future and in the wrong things. And this is, it reveals that we're seeking life in the outer man rather than in the heart. So grieve as you should, but, but get up and go as Samuel does. And so Samuel gets there. He says he did all that the Lord commanded him to do, through the fear, through everything that he was going through. And that is a great motto for life, just that we did what God called us to do. I wonder how different our community would look if the people of God did what God commanded them to do. If that defined our lives, how different would it be? What would we see He gets there, and really quickly in verses 6 through 10, God provides. He shows us how he does this. Jesse brings all of his sons before Samuel, and Eliab is the the oldest. He's the strongest. He's the tallest. He's the most intelligent. He is the new Saul. Like, if you're just picking someone to be king, like, he is the one. He's, He's a younger version of Saul that hasn't done the things that Saul has done yet. And so he would be the one that everybody there would think should be anointed king, but God says that's not the one. And then seven of Jesse's sons come before Samuel, and each one comes before him, and God says, this is not the one that I will anoint. And, and that could probably be a little bit confusing, is it not? Samuel's probably confused at this point. Jesse's confused. The sons are confused. Like, all of us have just gone before Samuel. God told you to come here, get Jesse, make the sacrifices, anoint one of the sons to be king. All the sons have gone before you. None of them are anointed to be king. What is happening? And so Samuel looks at Jesse and says, is there any way, right, that you have another son somewhere? Like, is there just a stab in the dark? Any way? God is not blessing any of these. He's not anointing them. And Jesse says... Well, there, there is one, but, but he's overlooked. Like, he's the youngest. He doesn't have any kingly attributes. He's ruddy, which, which could mean he had red hair. So all you red hair people, there you go. Um, it could mean that he had red hair, but it definitely means that he was scrawny. He was not ready to be a king. He was young. He's probably around the age of 15 at this point. And so he's, he's doing the most undesirable job. He's watching the family sheep. He is a shepherd in the field. But listen to me, it's completely overlooked. He is missing the most important part and his family's lineage. 
You are going to bring your sons and one of them will be anointed king and the spirit of God will come upon them and David doesn't even get invited. Like it's not even like, hey David, you're not gonna, come and see this because this is really important, but we're not gonna let you go before Samuel. No, he's like, go out into the field and watch the sheep. That's how unimportant you are. All the other brothers, one of them will be king and this is going to be a really good thing. This is so great for the family because Jesse, like us, judges on the outer man. He sees his sons and thinks there is only one that could not be at all the king that God is looking for. And so all of the other sons come. And I think to myself when I see that, how much do we miss because we judge in a human way? How much do we miss because we miss the heart of God? See, in verse 11, Jesse sends for David. He says, we're not even going to sit down. Hurry up and go get him. I can't believe you're wasting all of this time. And David finally comes and stands before Samuel. And David, I I know we don't know how David is thinking in this moment, but, but what we don't see is David angry about this. See, Dad, I told you. Right? He's not mad that he got left behind. He's not frustrated. He's not upset. Like what we're going to see of David is that he trusts God and he trusts that God is doing the best for him today and that God is doing what is best for him tomorrow. And he just walks in that real freedom. If you tell me to go watch the sheep, I'll watch the sheep. If you overlook me, that's okay. Because listen, even though the eyes of men are not on David and no man thinks David could be the king or the one that God anoints or the one that God's used, God's eyes are on David. And you might feel overlooked today and you might feel like there's nobody that's noticing what you're doing and you might feel like nothing good is going to come from your life. But it doesn't matter what men see. It matters what God sees. He sees the heart. He loves you. He died for you. He rose for you. He's called you. Get up from your grief. Go and honor him. Move towards him. Be used by him. He is calling you to live the life in community with him that he has given you through Christ. He will use you when you seek him, when he is at the center of who you are. And so here we see David stand before Samuel and God says, this is the one. He was not like anybody would have thought he would be because David will see, he is tough. He's watching the sheep, he's protecting the sheep. Sheep, We're gonna see that he becomes strong and he becomes a man of valor. He's tough in the making, but he is also tender. He sings, he writes songs, he loves, he cares. And listen to me, men who lead well in God know how to be tough when they need to be tough and tender when they need to be tender. We know how to care for those that are around us that we need to love and protect, but we also know how to be tough and stand for truth even when truth isn't being stood for. But any of the other brothers would have been better leaders. But God looks at the inner heart, and this is what I want to leave us with this morning. God prepared David in the obscurity. God prepared David in the waiting. David's waiting in obscurity isn't even going to be over. As we said, like verses 14 through 23, like David's anointed, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, but then he just is, it goes back right to the same job, same family. Same everything that his life was before, even though he has been anointed to be king. 
And God is using that in his life to actually prepare his character and his heart so that he can lead the way that David needs to lead so that even in his sin, he can turn back to God and reveal to us what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, to reveal Christ in everything that we do. And this is where we see this already but not yet. And every single one of us who are in Christ are here. You have been called. You have been anointed. But everything that you have in God through what he has but get, uh, gained for you through his life, death, and resurrection is not fully realized yet. We're all in waiting, whether we feel it or whether we don't. And one day he will make all things new and we will live in glory with him forever. But God works in this way. He prepares us in the darkness. He prepares us in the waiting. Don't overlook it. Wait with anticipation. Listen, my Braves, Atlanta Braves, they just clinched the division this past week, and they've done so the last six years. But the season's not over yet. They still have games to play. Like, the victory is theirs, but, but they don't hold any kind of trophy yet. They, they, they don't have everything that the victory brings to them in this moment, but they have the victory. Now they have to go through the games that are uh, end out the season. They have to play the different teams, but there's no way anybody else can catch them. They have won. And this is what we have in Christ, and this is why we can wait with anticipation, and this is why we can grow in the waiting and in the obscurity, just as God does with David, because he has already given us the victory. Our lives have been clenched in him. And like David, we can wait patiently, growing in him, preparing our hearts, allowing him to move in us to transform our hearts. Because listen, that is what matters. That is where we find life. And I just want to close with this question this morning. Where are you finding your identity? What lens do you seek life in? Is it, is it through the outer man? Is it through the outer person? Is it, is it I'm, I'm focusing more on my talents because that's what I need more than my heart to be with God to get everything that I want. I'm focusing more on my career because that's what I ultimately need, not my heart to be centered around Christ. I'm focusing more on my family because that's what I ultimately need more than my heart to be centered around Christ. I'm, I'm focusing more on whatever it may be in this world. That is an outer man mentality and it will not bring satisfaction and fulfillment. Or are we centered around Christ, which allows us to see the world through a joy that circumstances can't touch?